everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies. Matt, what's up, buddy? Happy holidays. Good to hear from you. We are post-Thanksgiving now. Apparently, Ralph Breaks the Internet is the second highest grossing, second biggest uh, Thanksgiving weekend opening ever. So, huh. uh, and that's a movie we're not going to talk about today, so... <laughs> yeah, how about that? But we're it's breaking <laughs> records all over the place. We are delightfully on trend with uh, what's going on out did here. You, did um, you like the first Ralph Breaks the Internet? You see Ralph Breaks the Internet? I never even saw the first. Uh, uh, Wreck Ralph. Ralph. Yes. Yeah. No, I <laughs> didn't. The prequel I didn't. to Ralph Breaks the Internet. I mean, it seemed to me like uh, like a sort of kids' Ready Player One, right? It's just reference porn, isn't it? It's a lot of that. Yeah, it is. But it's also kind of sweet and cute. And uh, I hear this one is even more kind of sophisticated and fun. So I'm sure we'll get around to it at some point. But yeah, for some reason, those movies are just completely kind of off my radar. We said we're going to try to keep a real quick pace today. <laughs> and I've already we have No, no, it's all right. We, we've got uh, just some, some quick rundowns of, of movies uh, that have come out recently that we have to catch up on. But I want to ask you this. What, what do you think about Lion King? Aladdin, Dumbo. Disney feels like it's getting super greedy, and just the looks of these movies, I, I know people like them, but I, it feels dirty, doesn't it? Like, it feels sort of disgusted by this whole enterprise Disney's going down. It feels like a, just a pure shareholder's cash grab, right? Yeah, my mom, uh, my parents are in town for the holiday, and uh, she was reading, you know, she was going through her news feed on her phone, and she was like, wait a second, they remade The Lion King? What does that even mean? Like, well, they remade it live action. She's like, wait, like the play? Like the Julie Tamer? Like there's actual, there's people on screen? Like, no, 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 it's all CG. She's like, wait, so how is that different from the, the animated version? And I was like, you make a really good point. <laughs> how is that different? And I found myself sort of defending Disney to her because she was just incredulous about it. And I was like, yeah, but Beauty and the Beast made like $1.3 billion or something. It was the highest grossing film of last year. And she's like, so? And I was like, yeah, good point. So? <laughs> I mean, I can't blame Disney for this. If people keep showing up and shelling out, how, how are you going to blame them? It's just like, you know, of course they're going to keep making Star Wars movies if we keep showing up. But I'm kind of with you. I, I think it's uh, it definitely makes me feel a little bit dirty. And it does seem like the epitome of cash grab. Because at least with the Star Wars stuff or even the Marvel stuff, at least they're introducing new stories. And yeah. they're going in new directions and new characters. And they're, they're, giving, they're expanding the universe. Where this is literally going back to the well. There's nothing new. It, it, it's exactly... I mean, Dumbo looks like it's a little bit of a variation. You know, that, that movie's like 71 minutes long or something. There isn't a hell of a lot of story there in the original. And I don't remember Michael Keaton's character being in the original. So The accelerated pace now. I think we're getting all three of those next year, right? Sounds right. Which yeah, is like, just take your goddamn time. You don't need to just, just trickle, trickle one remake out every couple of years. You well, don't have to do it like this. Well, I wasn't crazy about The Jungle Book, which, of course, was the last Disney movie that Favreau made. At least The Jungle Book was trying to do its own thing a little tiny bit. It wasn't just a straight-up remake of the original. Beauty and the Beast was just a, a remake. I mean, it's a beat-for-beat remake. I think they added one new song, and that's what The Lion King looks like as well. At least when it comes to Dumbo, Tim Burton will put a little bit of his own spin on it. Well, like you said, he has to. It's a 70-minute movie yeah. he's remaking. So Yeah, but I, I agree. This is this is a troubling phenomenon. Fucking fish in a barrel, right? I mean, how can you blame the guys? Of course people are going to show up for these movies. One contingent is all nostalgia for people. I mean, just the way people have been responding with all this like love and affection for this trailer and how it makes them feel it's like yeah it's literally just scratching that nostalgia itch for you you really like the lion king just go back and watch the goddamn lion king what i wonder with john favreau and lion king i mean a uh, jungle book his jungle book infamously was not shot on location at all it was shot in a you know in, in a, a backlot somewhere how many was he on set was he on location even once for this lion king movie or is this totally just a animated film you know essentially i was under the impression that it was on location with people doing like mocap performances and th that would be but you know I'm, i don't know what i'm basing that on like this thing may have just been 100 percent created in a computer in which case ugh. at the very least like aladdin to me makes a lot of more a lot more sense that could be a fun live action thing i like guy Ritchie. we'll see yeah but okay lion yeah. king seems weird if it's know. like a more if it's just like a better prince of persia or something yeah no no never mind let's get <laughs> off that subject all right so we're gonna talk about a few movies uh we're gonna touch on uh, old man and the gun uh fantastic uh beasts of the southern wild mm -hmm. <laughs> widows green book and creed 2 you caught old man and the gun 
a while back. I finally just just watched it. You're a big David Lowry guy. Speaking of Disney remakes, he made a delightful remake of Pete's Dragon a couple years back, and that's where he met uh, Robert Redford. I still have not seen that. I, I really need to. I love Pete's Dragon going up. So, Old Man and the Gun. God, you were you highly recommend this to me. I I I love Robert Redford, obviously, um, and this movie is right up my alley. What a what a delightful, just breezy, ninety minute uh, ode to Robert Redford, huh? You go with your you go with parents, go with family to see it. No, I just I went by myself. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, so did I. But I was literally the only person in the theater. I'm actually surprised that you managed to catch it because it, it's it's not even it, you couldn't find it here in New York right now. I didn't think it was even still in theaters. I so. caught on the last day at this theater. It came and went gone, so. really quickly, despite the fact that critics seemed to love it. And we and Robert Redford claimed this is his last film, and like, oh well, then we should probably Oscar nominate him. In addition to that, just being a good ovation, he's actually fantastic in it, probably Oscar worthy. But yeah. it seems like this movie didn't really catch on. It just ended up being too small. It's a little bit of the same phenomenon that happened with all. Is lost where i just think it's just a little bit too small to get the attention it deserves baby boomers are are ripe to be manipulated <laughs> i feel like yeah. and if you really play to their nostalgia it, it's it's frustrating i mean especially in the trailers there's no there's no uh glimpse of even tom waits or danny glover i feel like and, and okay. that's a big part of it. It, it it's a small sort of like i said breezy movie and it relies entirely on on redford's charm and it's a fun true story and it's pace really really well and it's it's funny and the, and the whole over the hill gang is is great it's uh if, if you don't know it's about some old dudes who rob banks rob redford's insatiable need to keep robbing banks and keep <laughs> getting you know doing dangerous shit and and, and i loved it I, I i imagine it'll probably be on my top 10 list by the end of the year yeah it's an unbelievably likable movie but even that sounds kind of patting the movie on the head or something it is i think it is also a very smart film and uh, i think david lowry has it just a perfect tonal grasp of this material and uh, and he knows exactly the kind of movie he's making and it is kind of a love letter not only to Redford but also to the Redford legacy and even to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid to a lesser extent. I mentioned it in our conversation recently about that film that this feels kind of like a bit of a spiritual sequel. Kind of opens with the exact same font even at the beginning of the movie. So uh, yeah, it's all shot on like lovely, grainy, beautiful six super 16 millimeter film. And it even features uh, some scenes from, at one point there's a wonderful montage of Redford breaking out of jail over the years and they even drop in some footage limey style from some of Redford's early work, which works really, really nicely. And he has a great relationship with Sissy Spacek, uh, which is adorable. And then you mentioned um, Danny Glover and Tom Waits. What a great year Tom Waits is having. I'm not even a big Buster Scruggs fan. I'm sure we'll probably talk about it at some point, but Tom Waits is a standout in that movie. I thought this was going to be a little more of a Heat-style cat-and-mouse thing between the two of them, but it really is Redford's movie. Affleck is a supporting character, for sure. He's definitely a supporting character, but you know he's he's given quite a bit of depth, I think, with his, his character and his family and his motivations and there's some really fun scenes with the two of them near the end that I uh, yeah that I thought really really brought the whole thing together so really fun film and you know David Lowry is absolutely going for this tone it's not like it happens to be sort of a light movie uh, on accident like this is this is what he wanted and this is uh, you know it, we don't see a lot of these types of movies I feel like these days when it's going to be bank robber heist movies uh, they tend to be a lot more serious and a lot more sort of hard editing and pounding scores and stuff like that right yeah, plus they start putting women in these heist movies all of a sudden. What's the deal with that, man? What is the deal? I miss the days where <laughs> men heisted and men only. Yeah. Oh, I think there's a good chance we might get to that in a second. Really hopeful that it comes out on DVD. Uh, DVD. All right, old man Knudsen. I really hope it comes out on the digital platforms here within the next month or so because it would be a great movie to watch around the holidays with the family. It's, uh, it's very likable. Let's talk about Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Do we have to? Uh, we can let's be extremely brief here, as <laughs> brief as we possibly can be. Uh, we agreed. We 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 signed a death pact together to <laughs> both go see this movie, even though we didn't want to. I'll say this: it makes the first Fantastic Beast look like a masterpiece. Yeah, this movie, boy. I honestly like we signed the aforementioned death pact to go see it together last week. We had plans to do a whole conversation about it. We didn't end up doing that and I'm kind of glad we didn't because there isn't much to talk about here but I gotta say when we still had when we still were scheduled to record that podcast oh shit I don't remember anything about this movie and I saw it like 48 hours ago and of course now it's even worse I mean that this movie really just goes in one eye and out the other I none of it resonated for me I, and I none of it 
sort of stuck. Nothing stuck to my ribs whatsoever. I mean, I wasn't even crazy about the original, but you're exactly right. At least that one sort of had personality and some memorable moments, and it had Colin Farrell chewing the scenery. This one is just, uh, God, it's vanilla, and it's so much table set. I've read every book, I think most of them twice. I think all of them twice. I've seen every movie at least a couple of times. During this film, and I saw the first Fantastic Beast. During this movie, I had no idea what was going on, why anyone was doing anything, why our main <laughs> character was involved at all, uh, what uh-huh. his talents were that lent him to this quest that Dumbledore put him on, why any of the reveals mattered in any in any way whatsoever. Yeah, this movie is completely baffling, and uh, J.K. Rowling, screenwriter, writing a film has zero to do with writing a book. It, it doesn't work. None of this works, and you have to be some crazy, canon-driven Harry Potter fan to probably get anything out of this, and even so, it just doesn't work as a movie. Yeah, even the hardcore Potterheads seem to be a little bit disappointed, or at least a little bit kind of puzzled by this film. There's a lot going on in terms of stories universe and apparently they're going to stretch this fucking thing out to five movies which is crazy to me i mean you really want you want to talk about cash grab we were just sort of uh, chiding disney a little bit i think this really is warner brothers milking this thing for all it's worth yeah and then once they get done with this series it probably will be about time to reboot the original series i would think uh (laughs) yeah they are all in on this wizarding world situation man i mean they with dc kind of like being so hit and miss and floundering a little bit i think they really are hitching their wagon to jk rowling star and uh and you know made a bunch of money we'll continue to make a bunch of money so it's i don't know it's a weird phenomenon i mean for a lot of people people of a certain age this potter situation really is big and lasting and resonant as you know maybe star wars was for us or even maybe lord of the rings to a lesser extent i mean there are a lot of people who are very very passionate about this stuff the theme parks are a big deal and there's some people who have like made a tradition out of watching the original eight i guess eight original movies in a row over the holidays which is just crazy to me it it is crazy to think that this is the 10th film in this series now that's more that's more movies than there are star wars movies uh yeah no one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, there's ten Star Wars movies, and now there's ten Harry Potter movies. Go. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of sound and fury signifying. Very yeah, well. I mean, the beginning of the movie, he's he's uh, up for this job versus this old grizzled horror type thing, and there's no explanation why those are the two finalists, what they have to do with each other, why he's being brought in for this, like why he's capable of it. It just gets more baffling. The Harry Potter movies and the and the books themselves had this really nice built-in structure of the school year, right? And so that sort of stabilized the audience and made us understand. Was going on. The nice thing about the original series was because Harry didn't know he was a wizard at the beginning, we got to experience and learn all these things through him, right? So he had to un- he had to learn this world, and we got to learn it right along with him. And so J.K. Rowling was able to parse out, you know, deliver all these little pieces of information in a very organic way. This, everybody's an expert, and not just an expert. These people are all, like, professionals, and they're all sort of, like, in the midst of a job. So we're constantly kind of struggling to keep up, and they have to rely on a lot of flashbacks and a lot of storytelling in order to get us into all this backstory. I mean, this is a prequel series to the original, and yet this series seems like it needs its own prequel series. I don't want to give anybody any ideas here, uh, because I don't think I necessarily want to watch that, but the Johnny Depp being in this movie in this series as the villain almost seems it seems like a joke yeah <laughs> it's like what do they, they do get johnny depp to be the villain of this wizarding series you know that's exactly what they did and it makes me feel bad retroactively for colin farrell because he was actually one of the best parts of the last film and it always made me feel gross it's like wait what colin farrell's not a big enough movie star because he doesn't have spiky white hair well let's talk about colin farrell being awesome in a different movie. How's that sound? Yeah, let's do that. But just real briefly, I will say that uh, I'm a Catherine Waterston completist. <laughs> she's one of my favorite working actresses right now. I think she's delightful. I think she's extraordinarily talented. She's really great in that movie, Mid-90s, which is not that great of a movie. I just find myself wishing that this series was about her and not to sort of use that as a jumping off point to talk about feminism or women in starring roles. But I, I don't dislike Eddie Redmayne, but I am i don't really understand what's going on with that character. And every time Catherine Waterston's around, I'm like, oh yeah, let's, let's do this about her. She's way more interesting and she's a you know just as vital as newt's commander is if not more so i think she and her sister actually kind of interesting they were my favorite part of the original and they're my favorite part of this one in an environment where we're constantly talking about this why are they not why are we 
we not focusing on on women in these le- in these protagonist roles? Here was a perfect opportunity for J.K. Rowling, a female writer, to have a female protagonist, and she kind of blew it. Yeah, and I will say the only good part about this movie is that during the PR campaign, Eddie Redmayne admitted that he was terrible in Jupiter Ascending. That's big of him to do. To do <laughs> it this. is. So I, I like Eddie Redmayne just a little bit more after this. I didn't like it very much to begin with. I, I don't dislike him, and I don't even think he's giving a bad performance. I just think it's an underdeveloped character. I mean, I guess he's there so they can keep calling this thing Fantastic Beasts, because it doesn't seem like beasts are all that in, involved, but we're all in on the on the, on the the title, on the naming structure now. Let's talk about Widows. A Steve McQueen, Jillian Flynn combo. Just saying that, it's it makes it a pretty interesting thing. Just an incredible cast, front to bottom. I mean, we got Viola Davis, uh, Michelle Rodriguez, Cynthia Revo, Elizabeth Debicki, Colin Farrell, Robert Duvall, Daniel Kaluuya, uh, who am I forgetting here? Carrie Coon. Carrie Coon, yeah. yeah. Liam Neeson, John Barenthal. John Barenthal, Barely. yes. John Barenthal for one and a half shots. <laughs> yeah. And Jackie, Jackie Weaver. Jackie Weaver, fuck yeah. Yeah, this was one of mine, I'm sure many people's, maybe yours, most anticipated films of, of 2018. Absolutely. Uh, I've only seen it once. I probably need to see it again to fully sort of register uh, my thoughts on it. But this is maybe less of a heist movie and more of a political movie than I had anticipated. Did you get that sense? Did you feel like it was going to be more of a sort of uh, spotlight on on Chicago and even America than than it was? Yeah, this is uh, the heist is definitely an afterthought in this movie, right? If if you know if Gosford Park is a who cares who done it, this is a uh, who cares about the heist situation. Yeah, I, I, yeah it's, I think much more of a treatise about modern American city in almost a The Wire kind of manner. Yeah. And um, and definitely, you know, a character study. So, and I was totally fine with that. I mean, he set up this universe and he set up this web of people that are so interesting and so intricate and the stakes are so high that ultimately the fact that the heist is probably the least Im- least interesting part of this entire endeavor uh, is fine with me. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, the heist itself is a Effective and it is good, but it is a very pretty. It's a pretty quick smash and grab job, uh, which which is fine. Which makes it sort of it grounds it. Feels more realistic, right? There isn't any sort of technological know-how or hacking, but it's it, it's effective. And you know they actually did their homework. But yeah, as a character study, I think it works works wonders. And you know, as 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 per Jillian Flynn's want, like it is. There are some nice twists and turns. Just sort of the mood and the and the general filmmaking acumen of of mcqueen here are sort of the stars of the show the one shot in the in the car taking colin farrell from you know the shitty part of his neighborhood to his home the scene in the gym with a cameo by chicago's own cool kids uh well-known rappers really really cool scene yeah and then you know maybe the heist itself steve mcqueen is is an interesting talented filmmaker obviously and the fact that this is probably his most commercial movie is still sort of brazen and, and, and weird in some ways and, and, and extremely violent and unapologetic, uh, you know, makes me feel good. gives me hope. Yeah, I mean, I did. I, it, it troubles me a little bit that this movie is struggling. It's been out for two weeks now. It's struggling a little bit to find an audience, uh, which surprised me because if this amount of star power and this subject matter and resoundingly positive reviews from the critical contingent, if that's not enough, for you to find an audience in this marketplace, that's that's a little staggering, right? It's tough because this is uh, what we want, right? It's a it's a mid budget yes. movie. It's an original story. It's not based on a book. Well, it's based on a mini series, right? A thirty year old mini British mini. Oh, sh- yeah, kind kind of, right? I mean, it's spiritually yeah. based on that, but whatever. I mean, it, it's it's as original as I feel Hollywood gets at this point. Sure, yeah, we'll take we'll it. We'll take it. You know, uh, in some ways, though, it is a hard sell. Like I said, it's a heist movie. That's not a heist movie. It's it's more of a political thing kind of a hard r it's 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 violent and sort of nasty at at times you know as a sort of pound to female empowerment and uh you feel like the audience should be there and uh i you know i can't fault any of the advertising you know i thought the trailers were effective i i guess i the, the marketing wasn't omnipresent or at least i didn't see it uh all that much but yeah i mean it was one of my most anticipated movies i was stoked to see it you know the day after it opened so i i don't know what's wrong with everyone else yeah it worries me a little bit it'll be interesting to see whether it, this you know can become a sleeper hit whether it will get nominated for best picture which I, at this point i'd say would be is an outside chance at best just because it doesn't seem to be really connecting with people but it's a strange movie i i've seen it twice now first time i saw it it was opening night it was packed the audience was totally dialed in I, lo- I absolutely loved it i loved every moment of it i just i was really really into it i thought it was incredibly exciting and very very sophisticated 
thought all the performances were amazing. The the twists, you know, whatever you want to call them, I got to be honest, I didn't see coming. So I was uh, I was on board. I was really into it. For the next like 48 hours or so, I kept kind of poking holes in it in my brain. And I was like, well, wait a second. Well, wait, what about that? Like, wait, how did that? Uh, wait, what was going on there? And I just started kind of like stewing over it. So I had to go see it again. And I still liked it the second time, but I think I've averaged it out now over these two screenings, uh, sort of come to the conclusion that I don't think this is a great movie. I don't even necessarily know if this is a capital G good movie. I do know it's a fascinating movie. And I know that I really, really like it. Mm -hmm. This is a messy movie. Yeah, I will say that. And in that regard, I will be very surprised if it ends up getting nominated for Best Picture because I do think it has quite a few flaws. Some of them are fascinating, admirable flaws, but it has issues for sure, and we can get into some of them. I mean, I, I, I like this movie. I will recommend it to anybody who will listen. This is probably Steve McQueen's worst movie, right? And I mean that with all due respect. He's only made four films. That might be true. Uh, I mean, it's definitely more enjoyable than Shame. Probably not better, but <laughs> so you're right there. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is not like a taut thriller you know like this this follows different threads uh that some are more meaningful than others and it has these subplots that are you know in retrospect maybe not as important to the to the through line of the movie as as maybe they seemed uh at the start and i assume that's kind of what your uh your issues are are, are coming from and you know maybe some characters don't get as much uh michelle rodriguez doesn't yeah, her character probably gets short shrift here. But then again, you get some really fun subplots, like Elizabeth Debicki's character and her whole thing uh, is a whole lot of fun, I think. She's the MVP of this movie, right? Elizabeth Debicki steals this She movie. is great. Uh, uh, Cynthia Revo, who, what a nice one-two punch with El Royale this year. Right. Uh, yeah, she's <laughs> she's terrific and just jacked in this movie, which is pretty awesome. I've heard some people uh, make the observation that she might do the Tom Cruise run better than anyone else's ever. <laughs> she, she's the closest to a prop approximating yeah. the cruise run. She has an amazing running scene in this movie. And it's not even during a heist. It's to like catch a bus or something, right? Yeah, exactly. She's our new great cinematic run. Yeah. And so I mean this movie does really try to meld the politics with the with the heist thriller aspect and the and the twisty stuff. And I think it more or less succeeds, but just in, in even attempting that, you're gonna get, I don't know, some muddled plotting and and pacing. So I don't think there's any way around that because it's not like those two stories aren't, I mean, they are intertwined, but they, they don't particularly need to be in sort of a general narrative sense, right? Yeah, and I and I kind of get the impression from what I've, I've listened to a lot of Steve McQueen um, interviews over the last couple of weeks because I'm fascinated by this movie. And he keeps going back to the fact that he was like a huge fan of the original miniseries, but that none of this sort of political stuff really existed in the original. It was much more straight down the line. So this is he, his and Gillian Flynn's sort of injection of sociopolitical commentary. And it is it's it is significant that he decided to set it in um, Chicago and not London. Steve McQueen has dual citizenship because he spent a lot of his life in the U.S. and apparently has spent a lot of time in Chicago. And it's always fascinating when a European filmmaker makes a movie where the American city is a character, right? Yeah. I mean, to see a European film. I mean, like I said, he has dual citizenship, just like Nolan, who also has a fascination with Chicago, interestingly enough. It's a perfect city to set something in when you want to make these kinds of observations about, you know, bureaucracy and politics and, you know, social climbers. I mean, it really, there's a lot going on in that city. There has been, you know, throughout American history in terms of corruption. Dynastic families, that sort of thing. So all that stuff, all that stuff is really great. And I mean, I think Chicago these days is in the news now more than ever, if, if for no other reason than the fact that it seems to be going through a bit of a crisis, if you will, in terms of the amount of gang violence and shootings that are happening there. I mean, it is one of the most violent cities in this country again. Yeah as it has been historically. So I think it's perfect timing for a movie like this to be set in a city like that. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, it's one of my favorite, it's one of the most interesting aspects of the movie. I mean, I really think you could just make a movie about Colin Farrell versus Brian Tyree Henry and that sort of alderman race. Yeah. Um, and not even not even have a heist film going on at all. No, you definitely could. You could have a, you could have a, you know, Liam Neeson versus people pursuing him or whatever. I'll say this. I, I was pretty high in the movie. I really liked it. Um, I came home, and two days after watching it, I watched Heat. Heat's a masterpiece, obviously, so it's, it's yeah. hard to, you know, compare, you know, the best one of the best films ever, I guess, to to anything. But Widows is missing out on a lot of that cat and mouse stuff. Uh, the characterizations are, are not as are not as deep. Uh, obviously, Heat is almost three hours long. Widows tries a lot, and it's not going to be able to succeed in everything. But I think, like you, I still 
really loved the experience of it and really enjoyed it and uh something i'll be revisiting again and again because super super fucking interesting that movie and all the women at the center of it the uh, the titular widows are all great and extraordinarily well-developed. I think they are all giving extraordinary performances. I mean, I think Viola Davis is kind of a, always a slam dunk. She gives you exactly what you're expecting from her. She's 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 our preeminent uh, ugly crier, right? Yeah. Not to say she looks ugly while she's crying, but I mean, she she's perfectly happy to let her nose run when she's crying. I mean, that's kind of her thing. She won an Oscar doing that. Yeah. So she's, a, she's our great runny nose crier. Uh, Michelle Rodriguez is always reliable, and it's really nice to see her in something a little more high-profile profile with all due respect to her work in the Fast and Furious films. This is one of the more high profile things she's ever done and apparently she turned the role down multiple times. McQueen had to pursue her hard to get her in this film. Cynthia Erivo is wonderful. Yeah, she's having, like you said, an amazing season um, and I think she's on the verge of becoming a big movie star which is cool with me because I think she's wonderful. Uh, she's totally, I mean, it's a little bit of a cliche. The Wheelman is always the one who gets um, who gets cast last. Right? Sure. <laughs> the Wheelman's always the one who gets, I mean, it's Dennis Haysbert in Heat. Yeah. He's the last one. This is that's the exact same trajectory because in Heat, which I've also watched pretty recently, Dennis, you're following Dennis Haysbert's character throughout that movie, and you're just like, what the fuck what, is he doing here? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why, why are we focusing this guy? He's a he's a fry cook. You know, he's a short order cook. What is going on? And then of course, of course, it comes together there right before the heist. It's a, this is exactly the same. Like, what is going on with Cynthia Riva? Oh wait, oh she's the babysitter. Okay, that's the connection. What? But what do they need her? Oh, she's the wheelman. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> and then Elizabeth Debicki, it, it's a little bit tough. Because you have all these, you know, uh, Latina and and black actresses in these major roles, and they're all wonderful. And yet, it's it's kind of the the white girl in this pack who's kind of the one that sort of like rises to the top, or at least seems to have the most interesting arc. Yeah, her her arc and character and just general situation is the most interesting. Um, and her, you know, her interplay with Lucas Hawes, her stuff with Jackie Weaver. Um, I mean, a lot of people are saying that the scene at the gun show and her walking out with the hot dog, hot dog, and the Glocks is <laughs> probably the best shot in the movie. And it's hard to argue sure. with that. Yeah, and just yeah, the, the way he, she portrays that sort of that, that character, who's uh, yeah, kind of a social climber and, and doing her best given the situation. Yeah, I mean, obviously great cast. It's fun to see Robert Duvall back on screen, uh, ye- yelling at people. <laughs> And uh, he and Colin Farrell make a great one-two punch as father and son. And you know, Colin Farrell is one of our one of our best uh, one of our best actors. And I love that he's uh, he seems sober and, and with it, and just you know, getting all the work he deserves. Something about seeing he and Liam Neeson sitting on that boat out in the middle of Lake Michigan, <laughs> like these two Irish titans, yeah. right? Sitting in in the in the middle of the lake in front of this huge, you know, like an American city that has such strong Irish um, heritage. Uh, I just I just loved it. I just to see the two of them together. I mean, we, we were not going to go deep into this movie to get into spoiler territory, and that's totally cool. There's a lot of mysteries to be solved and surprises to be found in this film. But goddamn, Liam Neeson, when that guy is on screen, you're just like, yeah, that that is a fucking movie star. <laughs> that is what a movie star looks like. He absolutely commands the screen. Obviously, by nature of this narrative, he doesn't have a lot of screen time, but when he's on there and when he and Viola Davis are sharing the screen together, it's like, yeah, that's that's a fucking movie star. Steven Spielberg knew it. He wasn't an unknown at the time, but when he was cast in Schindler's List, Spielberg was a obviously a good enough judge of talent to be like, yeah, that guy is, is going to be a huge star. And I think he still is, even even in this post-taken part of his career. Yeah. He is still just one of the most commanding screen presences maybe ever. He's he's pretty extraordinary in this movie, in the little time that he gets to spend chewing it up. Yeah, just real quick, Brian Tyree Henry and Daniel Kaluuya. Yeah. Speaking of people who can command the screen, I'm not super familiar with Brian Tyree Henry because I've never watched Atlanta. He's, he's extraordinary in this movie, and um, he's also going to be in If Beale Street Could Talk coming up here and then daniel kalua who plays the muscle clearly is the person who's having the most fun in this film right like what a juicy role you can he is a he is a great villain in this you know whether it's the gym scene or the scene at the oh forgot garrett dillahunt in a nice nice role too in this movie that made me so happy that garrett dillahunt turned out to be a good guy i mean it's a shame what happened to him but I'm so used to Garrett Dillahunt turning out to be like some sort of redneck, some sniv- snivelly motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's just a he's just a totally good guy in this movie. He just wants to help. He just wants to. He, he just feels bad for. Her. He just wants to help. And that was it. And that that really warmed my heart. Like, oh, I hope Garrett Dillahunt's not going to turn out to be a turncoat. Or yeah. Um, but no, yeah, the scene at Garrett Dillahunt's apartment. Uh, yeah, Kalia is having a lot, a lot of fun here, and uh, I think he'll he'll go down as a pretty iconic uh, bad dude. In movies, people remember this. Just the 
just a little wave just when he and Brian Tyree Henry are standing at the uh, in the cemetery and he gives a little wave that was like my favorite <laughs> shot from the trailer and when he goes and fucks over poor Kevin J O'Connor in the bowling alley it's it's just great i mean it's violent for sure and it's it's a little bit disturbing but it is there's something about watching an actor who's really come into his own now just completely chewing the scenery in a juicy role like that that kind of warms my heart. A lot of pleasures to be gleaned from this movie. Imperfect film, but I gotta say, I, I, I kind of love it. No, I appreciate the audacity of it, and you know, I'd expect no less from McQueen. You know, Gillian Flynn seems to be having a lot of fun taking on these projects, you know? Shall we move on to uh, something a little bit safer, more family-friendly? Green Book. The critical darling, kind of. A lot of people's choice for a sure best picture nom. Cinema scores are through the roof for this movie. But there is some backlash, and for for good reason, really. You know, I saw a preview screening of this about a month ago, and I did not want to like this movie, Matt. But, you know, it sort of warmed my heart, despite its failings, I guess. Uh, and I know why um, people have issues with it, and I agree with those issues. But I'll say, I think it... It's. It, I think it's effective for exactly what it wants to be. Yeah, I think it's it's a hard movie to argue with. I liked it. Don't think I'll have the impulse to go see it again anytime soon. Um, but I will definitely eat a little bit of crow in thinking that this was uh, going to be a disaster and being really turned off by the trailer. Got to say that trailer. It's not great. It it's it's a bad trailer. Plus, it ran before every single goddamn movie from August through um, you know late October. So I think it was really grating on me by that point. But it's not false advertising. I mean, you do get exactly what you expect to get from this and it would be an easy movie to dismiss if it wasn't so damn effective yeah it's a really interesting story the two main performances are as great as you'd expect from two of our greatest actors and uh, peter fairly acquits himself perfectly well crossing over into dramatic territory i will say at my biggest criticism of the film it's way too safe and way too blunt which i think is a bit of, of a recurring theme when com- comedy directors go into drama they they feels like they need to overcompensate a little bit by being safe yeah they feel the need to like make sure they know that, y- <laughs> that you know that they know that they're taking this seriously yeah, right? yeah, yeah so it could not be this movie has zero stylistic personality yeah if fairly wanted to completely keep his voice out of it then i guess he succeeded at that i just kept finding myself of wishing that the movie would sort of like tell me what kind of movie it wanted to be as opposed to just telling the story in a really safe way and completely relying on these two guys to carry it, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to rely on these two, you know, two people, these are the two guys to do it with, right? A lot of people have issues with... And I'll go back. I think Peter Farrelly does a fine job. I think it's a handsome enough movie. Obviously, period piece. you got a lot of fun scenery down in the South. But you're right. There's not a, not a lot of stylistic touches. And it does bluntly delve into the more dramatic scenes um, in a way that's uh, pretty on the nose. So I'm with you there. So the issues with this movie people have, um, some of the backlash is, you know, magical white guy, some uh, low-rent white dude helping a well-to-do, intelligent, uh, successful black man understand himself, right? So if it w- this white dude, Oscar, is he, what's his ethnicity? Is he Italian? I couldn't tell. <laughs> is, what, what's his ethnicity in this movie? Is he an Villalonga. Uh, yeah, um, as Italian, like yeah, really you cliche Italian by Vigo, but Vigo makes it work because he's uh, like I said, one of our he's one of our best actors. So when you describe the plot like at a ten thousand foot level, you're like, oh yeah, that does seem reductive and and stupid. But when you get into the specific characters, and like I've always said, like. You know, a movie doesn't have to be symbolic of something bigger. It can just be about itself. It can just be about the specific characters. The film and Pierre Farrelly, I think what he does best in this movie is these two guys give each other almost, you know, exactly as much as the other one, right? Like, they both, it's sort of a 50-50 proposition. They're good foils for each other, and they both uh, provide, you know, life lessons or whatever in an almost equal rate. So, so I feel like they they're on co- even ground throughout the movie and and by the end of the movie. So, so it, it didn't feel as icky as some of the maybe op eds would lead you to believe. I don't know. Did you have any any issues with that, or, or have been reading up on some people's reactions to the movie? I mean, that's an interesting perspective that you think that it is pretty much even fifty fifty. I I I like that reading. I wish 
kind of wish I could read the film that way. I do think I fall on the side of, of reading this film as being Tony's, uh, Vigo's movie. Yeah. I mean, I really think this movie is principally about Vigo's character. You begin and end the movie with him. I think Mahershala, Mahershala Ali, calling him a supporting character sounds weird, but if he does get Oscar nominated, I think it will be in the supporting category. I think that's right, because I think it is about how this Mahershala Ali character affects the Vigo character and the Vigo character is one who has an arc. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I guess you could say that the Mahershala Ali character has a little bit of an arc in that he makes an ovation at the end of the movie that he probably wouldn't have made at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But no, I I can't agree that it's a pretty much 50-50. I agree that they are kind of like teaching each other things throughout the movie and there is a give and take and there is a uh, quid pro quo reciprocity thing going on. But I think the movie has made a decision in the script writing stage that it wants to be the story of this Italian character, Tony Villalonga, and the fact that his grandson, I think it's his grandson, is one of the screenwriters of the movie yeah. is illustrative of that, right? I guess what I'm saying is that it's not like, it doesn't fall one on one side of the spectrum or the other where it's like, oh, this movie's about this white guy teaching this black guy how to live, or it's not about this magical black man teaching this white guy how to live, right? Not, yeah. not to be racist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's that fucking bullshit, it's bullshit trope, right? Like, it's not, I, it feels 50-50 that way. But yeah, I mean, obviously, Villalonga is the is the bookend of the movie, and he's sort of the our, our vessel throughout. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a this is a movie that families are gonna families are gonna go to the theater together to see. You know, it's got a lot of a lot of humor throughout, but it is safe, kind of Disney, right? Like it's uh, heartwarming in pretty saccharine ways sometimes. I think a credit to Peter Farrelly is he he gets away with it without it being too off-putting. Yeah, the first uh, let's, let's say the first 20, 30 minutes are pretty rough. As, uh, as you're starting to kind of like, the, the bluntness is really, really apparent at the beginning and all the Italian stuff. And it's like, boy, this is going to be a slog. And then somewhere along the way, it kind of finds its rhythm. Yeah. You know, like the fact that it's a road trip movie is helpful because it manages to just kind of like find that really safe gear that it can that it can roll along in. And yeah, somewhere along the line, it definitely starts to get under your skin for sure. How can it not when these two guys are just, I'm actually kind of surprised two actors of this caliber are in a film like this. Yeah. And to be directed by a guy like Peter Fairley, you know, and all due respect to him, he did a perfectly fine job i'm sure he'll make other great dramatic films now that this is going to be now it's clear that this works yeah but yeah it's it's definitely one of those movies that it's hard to argue with the fact that it is setting its sort of dramatic goals modest in a in a uh, reasonable register and completely achieving what it sets out to mm-hmm. do. And just from a screenwriting standpoint, I have a there's a, fam- a very famous professor who's been teaching at UCLA for um, 50 years who has retired and then come back and then retired and then come back. And basically, he's like Professor uh, Emeritus at the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television. So I took a couple of his classes. His name is Howard Zuber. He's written a dozen books. And uh, he's just been glowing all week long on his Facebook feed about how he thinks this movie is structurally pretty close to perfect. And he's, he's all about dramatic beats, and he's all about pushing and pull and when you know characters need to hit certain things on certain pages of the script and he's of the opinion that this movie basically does everything you should do in a script like yeah. this. And I can't disagree. I can't disagree. Yeah, with that. That, that that makes sense. The execution here is really solid. Like you said, you know, it's surprising that this is such a this movie is filled with high caliber people. I mean you, you could you could see a universe where this exact story is is a you know, Netflix movie that comes out during the holidays to not much fanfare, right? This could be a small movie, but uh just by the fact that we have these actors involved, and what a weird like. What's the last movie the Fairley Brothers did? That's a good question. I've been, they've been off my radar. For hall many Pass years. is it freaking Hall Pass. That seems like a long P- time. Potentially. Yeah. yeah, I mean, do, do you see think this movie's uh, gonna win some awards? I think it's just gonna be nominated a bunch. It's a good question. It's it's having a sort of a similar issue as Widows in that it is kind of. I mean, it had a pretty decent thing last weekend was a disaster they they should have just released it wide this weekend it had a really hard time in limited release last week this week it did better because it was thanksgiving and stuff it will be interesting to see if it becomes a big hit because i think coming out of toronto winning the people's the audience awards stuff like oh yeah this movie's gonna be a hit probably getting nominated for best picture if not win but it's a little bit contingent on whether or not it can find an audience like if this movie bombs i think it's a i think it's a very hard road to get to that Best Picture nomination. I agree. So I I don't know why, what it is about this. I guess everybody just wants to go see A Star is Born Again or go see How Ralph Breaks the Internet. Yeah, that's crazy. Because it seemed, I mean, I went to a sold-out show of this on 
Friday after Thanksgiving, but it was at the Alamo Draft House. Everything sells out there. It probably wasn't a very good indication. I think this movie is struggling a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, it does seem like a slam dunk for it to be that crowd-pleasing, traditional, old-fashioned Best Picture nominee. Mm-hmm. But I was kind of of the impression that the environment we're in nowadays is that we're not really into championing these kinds of movies, right? I guess, yeah. Like, I thought we wanted more Widows, you know? I thought we wanted Get Outs. I thought we wanted to mix things up a little bit. We wanted to see things that are a little more, like, socially progressive as opposed to some really old-fashioned, inverted Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I think sometimes we're a little bit schizophrenic in terms of what we, quote-unquote, want culturally, right? Yeah, I think a Best Picture nomination is probably a pretty good bet at this point. But the idea of this movie getting past Roma and uh, Star is Born for that Best Picture Oscar, I, I just can't see it myself. But maybe. The last movie the Fairly Brothers did was Dumb and Dumber 2. So yikes! Quite a uh, rebound for Peter Farrelly here. <laughs> you think that was kind of like the last straw for him. He's like, "All right, I'm out. I got to get out of this racket." <laughs> well, he's he's 61 years old, so you know it's time. And before that, it was movie 43, which is infamously one of the worst comedies ever made, right? <laughs> Definitely is one of the worst movies ever. Oh, I actually haven't seen it, so. Who knows? And before that was The Three Stooges, so not a great run there. I'm impressed with him here. I, I, you know, I'll eat my words a little bit. I think this movie is totally fine. Um, Again, one of those movies that was really pleasant going down, and then the last couple days is why I'm going to be like, wait a second. Poking (laughs) holes in it. Yeah. But I I will concede that this is is an effective film. It's a very nice film. It's a very pleasant film. And it is a film that it would be difficult not to just recommend to all your family members. All right. Shall we finish this off with Creed 2? Let's do it. All right, Creed 2. This is the eighth movie, I believe, in the Rocky Balboa franchise. Is that right? Five five originals and then Rocky Balboa. Yeah. Is six and then Creed and yeah, seven, eight. There you go. I think that's a good place to start because at this point, it's really hard to make an original film that is interesting and new and feels different. And they did not really try to do that <laughs> in this movie. The first Creed benefited greatly from introducing this new character, having this new potential arc, uh, bringing in old guy, mentor, Rocky Balboa, the the direction and style of Ryan Coogler. Yes. Some of those fight scenes in first creed were absolutely spectacular just sort of stuff we haven't seen before the one shot stuff bravura even yes and to my disappointment this movie doesn't even try to replicate any of that maybe it just wasn't possible maybe you didn't have the technical acumen maybe they didn't want to repeat what they're doing but to me this felt like a rocky sequel i mean this was exactly beat for beat kind of what you would expect i wasn't really surprised by anything in this movie but then again i thought it was executed fairly well despite all that yeah i don't know anything about this director steven steven Cappell jr yeah uh i don't i know nothing about him i don't recognize any of these films in his filmography and um i think it's significant that uh Stallone was originally slated to direct this film mm-hmm. and uh, he you know he still has screenwriting credit and producing credit of course but I don't know what happened along the way where he, I, I mean I doubt he was fired I'm assuming he probably just took himself out of the running for it maybe he just felt he wasn't up to it mm-hmm. I don't know but they, they ended up with the Stephen Cappell Jr. guy who you know it's a perfectly fine film from a directorial standpoint but yeah when you're following up Coogler who's obviously one of the most interesting and innovative uh, young voices of his filmmaking generation you you obviously have a high bar to clear and you probably should just try and do your own thing use your own voice and really kind of like left field this thing right yeah whereas this feels like kind of like a uh, safe and disappointing approximation of what Coogler was doing it it, it, is, it feels like a movie that is complete like a lot of the same issues as Green Book just incredibly safe and stylistically bland across the board yeah like the only real stylist it seems like the one thing that Stephen Cappell Jr. latched onto was the image of seeing Creed underwater. Yeah. Like, that's a, that's that's a visual motif that he's just, like, he keeps stamping on it because it's kind of all he's got, right? Exactly. He just keeps going back to it. Yeah, so, so the, there aren't any flourishes in this movie that are interesting in any way. That's not to say it's not sort of professionally directed and sort of pretty well done. I, there's a lot of aspects that could have been mishandled. Nothing seems like a horrible decision. Nothing seems like a, a huge waste 
in Creed 2. The Tessa Thompson's character, her her music, I think, is something that ends up being pretty effective and could have been terrible. Just the sure. fact that she has original songs and before the climactic fight in this movie, she's, you know, she's doing a song as, as Creed's entering the ring and that could have been cheesy and stupid, but it ends up being really fucking badass, I thought. Yeah. So, like, that's one aspect. This movie moves along fine. There's a lot of business to be taken care of uh, between fights and I think it works well. They didn't rely too much on sort of uh, fan service calling back to Rocky 4 all that much. I mean, they, they nod at stuff. They had a lot of the characters. Uh, there's some restraint with uh, using Ivan Drago and his son in this movie that I that I appreciated. I will say, though, that um, it is it is funny to me that every time he's watching footage of his father getting killed by Ivan Drago and Rocky IV, he's not watching footage of the, he's not watching like HBO footage of the fight. He's watching Rocky Four. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's like watching Rocky Four on his iPad, which always bumped me a little bit. It's like, okay, guy, couldn't we have just treated this a little bit, made it look like video, put a little HBO Chiron at the bottom? Like, give me something. He's literally watching the <laughs> I know, edited I know. version of Rocky Four. I know. I, that's so funny. Yeah, I mean, it would have been tough to re-edit those scenes. I don't think they had other footage, but just treat it a little bit. I mean, it looks like a film. You know, it looks like a, a Rocky Four shot in super 35 millimeter film make it look like you know bad 80s video or something put a little over put a little effort into this guys come on i could have done this on my laptop i will say max kellerman's play-by-play stuff is so on the nose throughout that that kind of bothered me but yeah I, I honestly don't have a lot to say about this movie i think it's just fine i think it's a middle of the road rocky movie and uh that's a little disappointing after how effective and interesting and and fun uh, Creed was. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, it's, it, I guess, a little bit uh, sort of anticlimactic to end on this film. But yeah, it's fine with a lowercase f. There's it's there's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly adequate. And we talked about this a lot when we talked about Creed a couple years ago when Stallone came so close to winning an Oscar. I, I mean, the guy's played this role for eight movies now, so of course he's dialed in. But there is still just something so pleasant and reliable and just like seeing him play that character and seeing his ease with that character mm-hmm. and just the steady hand he has with it. I I still find it insanely watchable. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just I never get tired of watching fucking Sylvester Stallone play Rocky Balboa in any context. Mm-hmm. And I just and I love his silly hat and I love his his leather jacket and his um, his ball, his hoodie <laughs> and his little ball and his uh, I just love the design of that carriage. Just it's all still there. Yeah. And I still and I love that relationship. I mean, they've only done this for two movies now. I buy it every time he and Michael B. Jordan are on screen together, and it's probably just a testament to the chemistry of those two and how how dialed in they are. But uh, but I never doubt for a minute that those two have a history together and that those two legitimately love each other. And I find that to be the most interesting aspect of this. And, you know, probably was the most effective part of the original film as well. Is like they've really locked into something great in terms of how those two... The master stroke of having Rocky be creed's trainer which was probably kugler's pitch for the original yeah it's just great it's it's just never going to get old for me i don't know if we're going to do this a third time but if we did i probably would go back and see it again just to see those two together and and to see what else they can glean from that relationship yeah i hope i hope if they do one they wait until kugler wants to do it that would be that would be a lot of fun you know this movie's fine i i I think you have to acknowledge that there were myriad ways to fuck this movie up and they absolutely did not do that so I guess that's a point in their favor. I mean, there could have been, this could have been a disaster in a lot of ways. So the fact that it's just fine and it's not going to offend anybody and it's not going <laughs> to tarnish the potential franchise, I think is I think is good. You know, if you're going to watch one of these movies again, you're obviously going to put on the first one, not the second one. It's still pretty damn effective when that when gonna fly now kicks up. Oh hell like, yeah, it is. Yeah, something about watching somebody running in slow motion while that Bill Conti song—it still works, man. Forty-five years later, whatever it's been, that that is still just one of the most rousing pieces of music in the history of cinema, and it absolutely works wonders every time. I mean, it's a little manipulative, sure, but it still it still worked for me. In terms of all the Drago stuff, part of me kind of wishes that this movie was a little trashier. You know, <laughs> part of me kind of wishes that they really had sort of leaned into because people always think of Rocky Four as being the trashy one, not necessarily the worst one but maybe the silliest one Mm -hmm. and i kind of wish they had allowed themselves a little more of that here maybe the fact that you're just introducing drago at all it's like all right well if if we're going to commit to it then let's make rocky four like let's let's really allow dolph lundgren to chew the scenery i mean bridget nielsen shows up in this movie yeah yeah which is wonderful i did not see that coming at all that's great and the guy who plays the young uh, victor drago is fine i think he actually i think he's a real boxer i don't think he's an actor 
I think he's like an he's an MMA guy or something. He's good casting because he's just a fucking beast. So yeah, I mean they, he is he is huge. But they ask him to do a couple of emotional scenes and he can't quite. He, he makes Dolph Lundgren look like uh, Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> but yeah, I kind of I I wanted more from Dolph Lundgren. I wanted more from his and Stallone's relationship. I wanted them to. I wanted more stare offs between the two of them. Right. Yeah, I mean, you get the one scene in the restaurant, which is, is great. which is great. Uh, yeah, but more of those would have been would have been nice. Maybe more backroom dealings and, and negotiations or, or, or something. Yeah, I I think in in every direction they kind of went the safe, inoffensive route, which is fine. It's all fine. Plus, they um, they chose to set the last fight in Russia, which is great. But if you're gonna go to Russia, then you you should train him in Russia, like they did in Rocky Four, right? Like they what do they go Arizona or something? That's not nearly as interesting as seeing Michael B. Jordan run up the side, you know, run up the side of a Siberian mountain. I mean, wouldn't that have been more? I mean, it was, I guess just too derivative, too much like Rocky Four. I guess I just keep wanting to be this Rocky. This to be <laughs> yeah, Rocky IV. it's too derivative. Uh, honestly, they gloss over that really quickly. It doesn't make sense that this fight's in Russia, right? Like he's the challenger. Drago's the challenger. Like, there's one scene where it's like, the fight's going to be in Russia. Take it or leave it. It's like, no, you don't have to take it or leave it. You can choose. You know, isn't it the the champion who gets to decide? It makes sense narratively if you have him go over there to train. Like, that's I think that's the way you do it. That's how he did it in Rocky Four. That works for me story-wise. I'm willing to buy that. But yeah, as it is, like, what just because it has to be on Drago's turf is really the only thing that they use to justify it. Not a movie we'll probably revisit very often. Not even necessarily a movie I would recommend to people, but, uh, but a perfectly pleasant experience while it was happening. Michael B. Jordan is a big old movie star, and there's a pretty good chance he gets Oscar nominated for Black Panther this year. It's funny to think of him as being that skinny little kid from the first season of The Wire, yeah. and now he's the biggest movie star to come out of that show, pretty much. With the exception maybe of Idris Elba. I mean, he's, he's a big deal. He's, I mean, he really, he really holds the screen. He's a movie star. Yeah, he's terrific. All right, well, this has been a fun little recap of uh, recent happenings. We'll be doing this more as uh, we get through awards season. We got some some big ones coming up. But until next time, this has been We Like Movies. Say goodbye, Matt. Happy holidays, pal. Goodbye, Matt. Love me, love me, love me, say you do. Let me fly away.